Welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning into the podcast, um, hit that subscribe button on the podcast. Check out all the content that we put out there into the investing universe. Go to my Twitter at Focus Compound on Twitter and hit that follow button. That's the best place to get everything that we put out there into the world. Um, and then of course, you know, go to FocusCompound.com if you want to get access to write-ups and research uh, we have posts going back to 2005 on there. I spent a long time going through all of Jeff's old posts on an internet archive website and re-uploading them to Focus Compounding so everybody could uh, read them. And it's always good time spent doing that. So you can go to focuscompounding.com and do that yourself for free under the free content section. Uh, so in today's podcast, we are going to talk about the markets. So our new schedule going forward is three podcasts a week. Okay. And ideally, I'd like to do one podcast that's more timely, okay. one podcast that's timeless, right? and then one podcast where we dedicate a show to basically talking or communicating or uh, with what's on our viewers' mind. So either that's through Snap Judgments right. or a Q&A. And... For the Timely podcast, a lot has happened over the past week. We've spoken about a lot how it seems like now more than ever, at least in recent history, that uh, macro seems to be on a lot of people's minds. And we've been thinking through you know, different macro things, especially like with interest rates and stuff because we own banks. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about you know just some things that um, from the recent Fed minutes, just some things that stood out to me and kind of get your opinion on it. And then we're going to actually look at an industry for everyone that's listening. Wait to the end of the podcast. We're going to talk about retail, which I'm okay. curious to hear your opinion on some stocks that look very cheap on uh, a bunch of different, uh, you know, multiples and stuff like that. Okay. But so the FOMC minutes revealed an even more hawkish federal reserve than the markets were expecting. Um, so rewinding a little bit to the end of 2020, it was, you know, that they're basically going to slow down uh, the asset purchases. They'll slow down the balance sheet. Right. And then from there, maybe they'll, you know, raise short-term rates. And the tone has seemed to change a little bit. It seems like it's gotten a little bit more severe recently. Um, so I'm going to summarize it. Inflation concerns, um, inflation readings had been higher and were more persistent and widespread than previously anticipated. This is from the minutes. So mm-hmm. this is among all the members. I think this is something that we've you know talked a lot about recently on the podcast ourselves. Um, it sounds like faster rate hikes is something that's going to happen. Uh, the part that I have highlighted, if you are watching on YouTube right now, is that they're going to increase the federal funds rate sooner or at a faster pace than participants had earlier anticipated. I think the market itself is pricing in three to four uh, 25 basis point uh, rate hikes in 2022 um, uh, on the balance sheet runoff. So not just stopping security purchases, but actually allowing the balance sheet to shrink. It says almost all participants agreed that it would likely be appropriate to initiate balance sheet runoff at some point after the first increase in the target range for the federal funds rate, which it sounds like they're talking about doing that in March. So that's something new. Um, starting balance sheet runoff sooner, as I said, some participants also noted that it could be appropriate to begin to reduce the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet relatively soon after beginning to raise the federal funds rate and back to uh, doing it faster. Pace of balance sheet runoffs would likely be faster than it was during the previous normalization episode. So to summarize, it sounds like the Fed is actually worried about inflation. We know that. Powell has said it's time to retire the word transitory. Um, Sounds like faster rate hikes than what was previously communicated. And the balance sheet runoff itself is going to happen sooner and faster. So I thought that was pretty interesting because it sounded like a little bit uh, just a newer tone to it where it sounds a lot more serious than was communicated at the end of 2021, which, by the way, was only like a couple weeks ago. And the minutes are from before then. Uh-huh. So it's just information that wasn't public, uh, but it was. We Powell had a press conference and stuff after that, so they knew what the minutes were, what the minutes were. Um, I mean, all the participants knew that he knew it, but it wasn't made publicly available. There's a lag before they make the minutes public. Mm-hmm. 
Um, after last week's sell-off in the market, so rates have been going to uh, starting to go higher. A lot of these longer duration stocks, right, uh, trading at insane multiples, they've been kind of coming back down to earth a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than 38% of NASDAQ stocks were down 50% from their 52-week highs, which I thought was interesting. Um, seems like in our neck of the woods, we haven't really experienced much of that. Well, Microcap had a very good year last year. Uh, microcap value was probably the best performing, I would guess, um, and had one of its best years. Yeah, so that's probably a big reason why. Whereas Nasdaq stocks tend to be a lot larger and some, you know, more growth. Do you think that's because a lot of microcaps didn't bounce back as quickly as the rest of the market did? In I don't know, 2020, um, Q3, Q4. Some of it might be increased cyclicality of those kinds of stocks. So stocks that have. Um, Better balance sheets are more cyclical. Things like that would tend to do better in a, um, the early part of an economic, you know, uh, growth phase. You know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nasdaq stocks were popular during a period where there was low growth and low inflation. And now, if you're going to have high growth and high inflation, maybe it, it'll be different. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, treasury yields keep rising. So we have the 10 year. Some treasury yields. You yeah. have the 10 year. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I have very, the two year as well. Two year, but very long term has not. No. Mm-hmm. And why is that, do you think? Is don't it- know. There's different theories on why it might be, but I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. But so in theory, like if you're using, so they use 10 year often just because it's easier to do. But it really, if you were trying to match durations and stuff, if you were trying to match durations on NASDAQ stocks, you would presumably say that you need to use 20, 30 years, things like that are the best estimates, 30 years. Um, and those rates haven't uh, gone up really. Uh, in fact, that's flattened out on that side of it. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, 10 is the more popular one to use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it sounds like, you know, of course this is short-term stuff, but you know, the flows have started to go from growth stocks to value stocks. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, it happened before. Yeah. As you can see, uh-huh. you can see that that has happened before, but yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Jeff and I follow used vehicle prices. So I actually inputted this chart cause I wanted to talk to you about it off the podcast, but you can okay. see the price of, uh, <laughs> uh, that has happened. But anyway, so yesterday, Jamie Dimon came out too, and he said that it's possible that, and of course, you know, talking his own book and, you know, a certain way as well, but it's possible that inflation is worse than people think. I personally would be surprised if it's just four increases this year Four would be very easy for the economy to absorb. Yeah. Uh, if we move forward 25 basis point once, yeah, it'll be more than four, I think. But I don't think it'll be more than four. I think it just would probably be done with more than 25 at a time if you had to do it. Um, but that can be communicated over time. Mm-hmm. You're very, very far from <laughs> restrictive monetary policy. So given the level of uh, unemployment, level of inflation, you would expect a Fed funds rate in the like three to six percent range, probably right now, just in terms of what you would have been taught in school would be normal. Uh, we're nowhere near there. So, how do you get there within a uh, reasonable period of time? Um, you know, you would maybe maybe would have to raise things faster, but I, I don't know if it'll be raising things faster or just communicating that things will be raised more later. I think it'll be a combination of the two, probably. Keep ever keep always being a little bit more than the market's expecting, you know. Mm-hmm. So they've done that before already. They've done that throughout much of this year. Is you know, oh, this is a slight adjustment. We're pulling things forward a little bit. We're doing a little bit more than people expected. Maybe they expected two. Now it's going to be three. Maybe then it'll be four. You know, like that. And it because they probably want to avoid the um, surprise. You know, where they talk about the taper tantrum and all that sort of thing. The taper tantrum. Yeah, I got yeah. another lingo thing for you. I mean, do you think the Fed is behind the curve? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, way behind, obviously. But they know that. Yeah, they do know that. Yeah. Yeah, no, they've never been this far behind. So what do you think is going to happen then? I mean, so from our perspective, it's like if you were 100% cash today and you were looking at the market with fresh eyes, mm-hmm. I mean, what would you be thinking? I mean, where would you be looking for opportunity? I don't know. It's hard to say. Because some things could come down uh, and be more attractive. Obviously, the the um, the appeal of cash is greater because you expect to be paid more on cash in the near term. 
um, and you expect, see that asset prices are high now and the combination of those two things works out for you. That's true for anyone. It's true for insurance, banking, things like that. Um, we talked about it a little bit when we did a write-up of Frost once. You kind of do the math on saying, okay, well, should they buy securities or should they leave money at the Fed or something like that if you expect rates to increase by a certain amount within a certain amount of time? Because if you do, then it becomes less and less desirable to buy three, four, five-year securities, um, which you expect that you will want to use that money some in some other way in three or four or five years um, if you expect rates to increase by a meaningful amount in a short period of time. So it has a major effect on those sorts of things. Usually when you're planning to make decisions about 10 years to 30 years, that's a bit different decision, but it should have a pretty big effect on very short-term, uh, not very short-term, but like two-year stuff. It would make sense that I don't want to buy a security that's two years. Instead, I should just hold cash, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, adding new money to something, it it's somewhat more attractive to, to, than it had been before to just say I can add money to cash instead of I have to add money to bonds or to um, an index fund or something. If you're saving each month, it becomes a little bit more attractive if you think, okay, well, I'll have a percent more in a year. Mm-hmm. Frost, it should be a good and great environment for them, correct? We'll see. Yeah. Um, so they're not cheap. The stock has gone up a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone that purchased Frost in the crisis at like 40s. What? Yeah. It was the lowest day that it was. So it was somewhere in the 40s. Yeah. So it's it's tripled. Uh, well, it wasn't the low 40s, but it's almost tripled since then. Have you seen uh, OTCM's new charts on their website? I have. Yeah. Um, so this is otcmarkets.com. Yeah. They have new I pull charts. Up, uh, CFR. So yeah, it looks like yeah. the bottom in 2020. You can see there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Frost is one that obviously higher short-term rates are something that would be beneficial to them. But the other factor that's important to them is, uh, commercial loan growth, like CNI lending, stuff like that, like business growth. And I think that that was very strong in the past, in the end of last year. I think it was very strong, but I don't have published data on that and stuff, but just anecdotally from what people said. So uh, as compared to other parts of the economy, so like smaller mid-sized businesses, smaller businesses, all those sorts of things, obviously with the big public companies, you might know what they're doing, but just more investment in different stuff, growing inventories, um, increasing CapEx, all sorts of things like that, just a variety of different things that they wanted to borrow to do. And that hadn't been the case so much. If you look at the quick FS, we could see this. Frost has had two kind of problems. One problem is low, you know, shorter term interest rates. So five years and less. Um, and cause they don't make a lot of really long-term loans. And then the other issue is the loans to deposits. As you can see, while they're always pretty low for frost, that has been a problem that there hasn't been much, uh, Super low. right. From business things. It's been lower before in the middle of the, um, crisis in Texas. What is that now? Going back 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well over 30 years now. Um, I think they got down into the thirties in terms of loan to deposits. I believe in the great depression that the entire U S economy was probably, you know, I don't know if there's data exactly on or how you would select what banks to include in that data, but probably 30% or something was probably loans to deposits at one point. So the level that they're at now though is abnormally low for, you know, most periods. Um, and then when we've had big booms at times, the whole system has gotten to close to around a hundred percent or something, both in, um, in 2000, uh, in, you know, basically through the late nineties, through the financial crisis, it was quite high. So, yeah, so they would need to have a much higher loan to deposit. Since you can see, they've really not got much over 50% for the last, uh, 10 years or so. They own a bunch of securities and obviously the yields on those could go up over time if uh, interest rates rise but the biggest thing that would be helpful to them would be making more loans so it would be nice for them if there was more demand for businesses they don't really serve consumer demand at all for loans which next year should be a great year for the economy or 2022 so in general yeah this year yeah yeah. yeah. um that's very possible yeah yeah And, and some of that i don't know also they're an energy lender they might not have had as much lending to energy recently, but that's not a huge part of the portfolio. But 
that could, you know, that, that can be a little bit of it. That could certainly explain a few of those percentage points alone. Yeah. So typically when these very high multiple names come back to earth a little bit, mm-hmm. I mean, what usually happens in the value world? Is it money just flows into them and, you know, they're all of a sudden not left for dead and they start to get bit up a lot? I mean, traditionally, like, go back to like the tech crash well, and stuff tech like that. was big growth so you sold big growth and bought small value and so micro cap value type stuff probably had its best period ever in that period yeah i'd say that's true because it was a combination i mean now it's remembered as a dot-com bubble and people like to talk about the little dot-com stocks that didn't have any earnings and all that stuff but that's not really what it was um at the time they didn't even talk about it so much as t- as um as a dot-com only actually it was um uh, telecom, media, technology. Those were the kinds of things they talked about the bubble being in. But it was also in very big blue uh, chip stocks. You know, the GEs and the Home Depots and things like that uh, got very popular. And so as it came out of those things, obviously a lot went to value. Now, the decline in the big NASDAQ stocks was huge. Um, and it went over a series of uh, flows out, really you first had your pets.com type stuff go down, but everyone said that's okay. Um, they aren't real businesses and stuff. Then you had some things that were uh, tied more towards being very technology and um, those sorts of things. And then it went on to all the media things, all the uh, the big blue chips and all that. So it went into a series. And in some cases that might've helped hold up some of the other stocks that as people got out of the speculative tech things, they went into the Cisco's and things, which were incredibly speculative, but they were earning, you know, their real businesses are earning a lot of money, but they were priced at a hundred times earnings. And then as they got out of that, maybe then they got into Coke and Disney and GE and whatever. And then finally they got out of that and into value type things. Yeah. Some, and much smaller. There was a big size thing then that people were really into the really big stocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you said, you wouldn't be shocked if there's four rate increases this year. Maybe. I mean, so the Fed's minutes are a little interesting. I mean, I read them and there's a few, they don't list, you know, their minutes, so they don't list what participants said what and everything. But there are a few things that people said that I think would be important to keep in mind. So the vote's unanimous and stuff, but at some point if you, you have to recognize that some people are saying things that others are not quite saying one of the ones that makes a lot of sense that some people are saying is the fed has already achieved or in fact uh, overshot their goal of uh employment consistent with inflation and i think that's a hundred percent true clearly um they're still getting better employment numbers and they probably have exceeded the level of employment that would be desirable for uh inflation at two percent or less i don't think you want i don't they always change adjust their level that they think is um, the uh, rate of employment consistent with um, what they would say is like a, um, a, well, a moderate level of inflation is what they're really shooting for. It's not really a, a consistent um, level. So let's say 2% or something. Let's pretend that's what they mean. If that's true, I don't think that unemployment below 4% is consistent with um, with inflation below the target that they want. It wouldn't be good. So you don't want unemployment that low. Um, There's also a thing that they can talk about, and they probably have talked about a little bit, which is that they can come out and say that that these two goals are, in some sense, incompatible. They're non-complementary. And so uh, we have to focus on inflation at the cost of unemployment. And they can actually come out and say uh, increasing strength in labor is bad for the inflation problem and we're dealing with the inflation problem so that may mean that we have to um, cause increases in unemployment i don't think they'll be that blunt but at some point they may say that 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 continued reductions on unemployment are inconsistent with their goals is that your own theory or did you read that somewhere kind of reading between the lines in the minute some people said that they've definitely um it's clear that some people said in the minutes that they believe they've already achieved it the you know, overall line is that they will achieve it very soon. You know, the trend is also, yeah, they've achieved it. We're back at pre-pandemic levels. No, they've exceeded it. There's yeah. no doubt that they've exceeded yeah. it. And and it, I mean, I was at a restaurant that um, put everyone in the bar area 
to feed them because they didn't open up most of their restaurant mm -hmm. uh, because they said, and they put up signs, we don't have labor and stuff. And there's many places that say that. I just actually tweeted out today that a pizza shop was offering $35 an hour. Really? Because they can't get people to fill it. And now this was not in Texas. This was a more expensive real estate part of the United States, but 35 bucks an hour. And they said the people actually show up for work and they're super thankful for it. But yeah, $35 an hour at a pizza shop. And you've seen that elsewhere as well in the industry. I mean, McDonald's, I know for a lot of places was offering like 20 to $25 an hour, which was, you know, is a bigger corporation and stuff like that. I was just surprised that a mom and pop was offering 35 bucks an hour yeah and so a lot of these things over time feed into other stuff and there's certain things you want to avoid um the big ones that they want to avoid are automatic wage increases tied to inflation and those are always popular in earlier times so people comparing the minimum wage in the past to what it would be if it was adjusted for inflation unions saying this is what we we're paid in the past we should have an automatic adjustment for inflation um in, in Inflationary times, you want to the Fed and and other people would want to avoid that kind of thing because that would be the thing that would be particularly problematic, um, because then that drives future expectations of inflation, and then you know so that's generally wages that are moving in lockstep with inflation would be a worry, and they probably I mean if you don't have if you don't have some unemployment, then you have problems with bargaining power and you have problems with shifting things around it's very hard to resist those kinds of wage demands and stuff if you don't have um sufficient uh labor pool reserve so some degree of unemployment is desirable for flexibility in an economy i've always said that i think that's a major problem in japan that they would have been better off if they had more unemployment um and that's made it hard for them to make certain adjustments and the u.s has been pretty flexible compared to most countries they've had um, an ability to have lots of quits and then people move from job to job a lot, but that's, that's a major issue. And, and it distorts all things nationwide that way too, because remember a lot of people aren't going to move for different jobs in different places and all that. If your labor doesn't match up exactly right, if you're running a little too much, uh, a little too low on unemployment nationwide, that means that in some places you might be really having a shortage. You know, in some places it might be fine. This isn't much of a problem. But in some places it means that there could be really severe labor shortages if the labor market's tighter there than it is in other parts of the country, you know. That's the average that we're seeing overall. And you have to be careful mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. You don't want to cause labor shortages in specific industries, specific um, parts of the country and things like that. And there's just certain jobs and things that people don't switch back and forth from that quickly. So if they end up with not enough labor, you can't pull people in that easily from them. Um and there's other jobs that people do switch very easily between them, but there's always some jobs that are less desirable for whatever reasons or have always been people who have experience in that area. And it could be very hard to find them for those sorts of things. I mean, people don't suddenly become truck drivers, mm -hmm. for instance. And so people say, why is there a shortage of that? And, and all that, you know, you probably don't know a lot of people who've did truck driving for a little while and then did other things in their life and stuff. It's not as common as certain other things. Whereas, you know, McDonald's is an easier thing to have people come in and out of. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts then? So assuming that you think short-term rates are going to rise high, like go higher. I mean, how are you thinking through that when you're researching banks or looking at different companies, thinking about, you know, handicapping different businesses, but more importantly, also the current businesses that we own, how are you kind of thinking through it? What's your thought process? Uh, I mean, for banks and other financial things, the biggest issue generally is, um, that you don't want high uh, growth, you don't want high increases in your um, short-term uh, liabilities that are high versus what you had, what you're earning on your assets, what you had made loans at, what securities you had bought at certain prices, things like that, but especially loans. Um, and then uh, in particular in relation to your growth. So if you had slow growth now, it's more of a problem 
And if it happens very quickly, it's more of a problem. Um, as long as it takes a longer time and you're growing fast during that period, it's not as big of an issue because it's sort of like laddering. You keep having the, the new flows that you're putting to work are bigger than the ones that you had previously. And so it's kind of like what Buffett talks about where he says, well, you can keep your mistakes because they do you know, at Berkshire's record, they dwindled down to be almost nothing. They mm -hmm. seem to disappear from Berkshire's history. If you made loans, at very low rates a long time ago and now your funding for those are theoretically much higher you know will be much higher than they were the loan that you made it's not the biggest deal in the world if most of your loans are much more recent because you've been growing so much more so if you've been growing double digits year after year and continue to grow like that through this period then you're making so much more of your balance sheet putting it to work at more recent uh rates that reflect that if you had something that was sort of perpetual and was paying everything out in dividends, right? Like there was some fund established for this and was paying everything out in dividends and stuff that would have real problems. Like it would have solvency problems and stuff eventually. Um, if rates rose very, uh, rose above, if your short-term liabilities rose above what you could lend things at, what you had been lending things out for, obviously things will adjust over for everyone in the future so that, um, if there were to be an inversion or something in the curve, it wouldn't last for very long. So, uh, you know, the longer term um, rates would be higher than short term rates, but that doesn't guarantee that long term rates from the past will be higher than short term rates today. And you're funding with short term rates today, not short term rates from the past because you didn't match off your, your assets and your liabilities. So those are the big issues, how quickly it is going to happen. And, um, then also the growth of whatever you're looking at. It is more of a problem for things that don't, that haven't grown as much. So they have more legacy stuff. It's a mismatch that has to do with sort of that thinking. As long as everything's very current right now that you're making all your decisions and stuff, it's not a problem. If somehow you're able to reallocate all of your balance sheet, institutions wouldn't have any problem with this, but there's stuff that's already out and that that can't be changed with, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's something to think about. Um, my concern always when I've talked about this, uh, you know, the, the two concerns with the economy when people talk about uh, that I would have would be inflation and the speed of short-term rate increases. It's never been that there's some level of short-term rates that's a problem or anything. And also with inflation, it's never been that a brief period of inflation is a problem. But, you know, if you see in the, the minutes that the Fed had and stuff, not in those minutes, but they did their little... um. A dot plot. The plot graph, yeah. yeah. So if you look at the long-term thing there, they have something that makes no sense. I think the average that they're predicting for like, it's sort of, they say, I don't know if they say it's long-term or whatever, but given appropriate um, monetary policy and stuff, this is like the, the normal level that you'll see after the next few years. So it's beyond the period of their projection. And it has something like they expect the Fed funds rate to be at two and a half percent, I think is what they said. I don't have it in front of me, so I could be very wrong on these. And they expect inflation to be a little bit over 2%. I don't remember it's 2.2 or what, like this is the median or the average you could say. Um, those seem crazy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, because inflation is already higher than that. I'm not sure that historically before the financial crisis, anyone would have said that a two and a half percent um, Fed funds rate would necessarily get you any lower than a 2% inflation rate. Um, I think they might've expected like 3% um, rate would be consistent with 2% inflation or something like that. Three to 4% rate consistent with two to 3% inflation, something like that. Um, years ago, if you go back to the nineties, two thousands, people probably would have been saying that. So that is interesting. Um, it, it, I don't, I think that's probably just a lag of things that they, that it takes, you know, this is sort of like credit ratings. Like people ask is like Moody's and S and P and stuff good on the credit ratings. They're great on their initial ratings. They're slow. So they're always right. I mean, not always they've had problems, but basically even the uh, financial crisis stuff, eventually they would have downgraded it. Mm -hmm. They would just downgrade it too slow. And often if they start to downgrade things and stuff, you can expect what will happen for a while afterwards. It may be that the feds totally right in their minds about what they're thinking but they will adjust that plot over time in a way that's slow. And so we'll see that change. So you can, I mean, that's what I've said about inflation expectations. I think it reflects recent experience with inflation and that maybe a major change in people's inflation expectations might be significant thing to worry about, but the actual level of inflation expectations, I don't think is 
that important because it can change rapidly. Same thing with the Fed funds rate. You know, the Fed funds rate, banks and things like that have to make decisions based on it because that's the world they live in and they have to keep lending money out. But for us as stock investors and things to think that, oh, the Fed funds rate is 0%, 3%, whatever. In my looking back at history, I don't think the Fed funds rate today helps you predict what it'll be in 15 years at all. I don't think there's really a relationship between the two. So when you say the speed of change and the speed of things like with the Fed funds rate, can you mm-hmm. clarify what that means? I mean, are we talking like if they go from zero to four in a year? I mean, how are you kind of thinking about I that? I don't think they would do that. I know you don't, but I'm just saying like, what is quick? What is know. the speed that would worry you? It depends on how bad inflation is and how, um, I don't want to say bad, but I would say the media will report it as good, but at this point, unemployment declines are bad. They're potentially, they may be worse than the actual inflation reading is the concern that people would have. Like the Fed may pay more attention to that. Significant um, trends, if there was any trend more towards declining unemployment, towards increasing quits, towards um, difficulty of filling jobs and those sorts of things would be the thing that they'd have problems with. Um, union stuff that would indicate um, automatic wage increases consistent with inflation in the future. Um, strikes that the um, uh, companies end up making major concessions as a result of things like that would be probably more the concern. I think labor would be the main concern. As I think I mentioned to you, I paid more attention to um, inflation categories that I think are more consistent over time, are less likely to be volatile. So it's not just that, you know, things like food and energy, but like food away from home outside of COVID, I think is a good indicator. Um, I think things on credit are not very good indicators. I would throw out education. I would throw out uh, medical. I would throw out housing. These are important things to people's cost of living, but I don't think they're very good guides to um, what's happening in the economy in terms of long-term risks of inflation, deflation, things like that. If you look at sort of the things that I would look at, they were actually lower um, in the early part when people started getting worried about inflation. They've tended to trend up. So if you like take out the really big categories that everyone's talking about, houses and cars and things like that. Actually, almost each report since uh, the spring of last year has been month after month after month higher in the overall category and like medians and they can do trimmed medians and things like that. And that's sort of more important, but it's also just the range of it. There's almost nothing under, there really isn't things below three. A lot is between three and six in those categories. Um, and, and even other things, like I mentioned food away from home, uh, actually at restaurants is higher food away from home was including institution stuff, which is, um, which brings it down artificially. And so restaurant pricing was increasing even more, you know, things like that. So it's just very different. And, and before it was running, um, it was running higher in those categories than what the reported inflation often was, but it was running at 2%. Nothing was hitting 3% for years and years in the last 10 years. It was really pretty consistently in those kind of categories down around two. Uh, it's true that it wasn't near zero or something. The thing there was never deflating and the way you were getting things close to deflation were in more volatile categories, but it was never reaching those sorts of numbers. And now it is. And you wouldn't make those changes unless you expected them to keep. A grocery store will adjust meat prices, you know, based on um, commodity stuff, but a restaurant won't. That's the last thing that they would do. So they're not going to change their menu price this year and then say, oh, we'll lower it next year and take it back. Um, that's, you know, a permanent change. And it, I don't know that it'll keep sticking, though. You know, I think the level of inflation in the last few months that you saw the actual year over year reading it's hard to maintain that level of inflation if the economy is all open and everything Mm -hmm. but yeah uh, you know so it can come down but the question is when it comes down a lot what will um the fed do and everything we've talked about that a little bit i think they would be my guess i don't know but my guess would be that they although they say two percent they would be 
perfectly happy with you know 2.9 percent yeah if they had a high rate if the sure. fed funds rate was high and inflation was 2.9 percent i think they if they had to choose between that and uh clearly causing a recession i think that they would be more comfortable with that now then i and i don't think that was true in the past but i think that the financial crisis um has caused a greater acceptance of inflation yeah, much of the experience of the 2000s has caused a greater acceptance of inflation do you think it's hard for them to make those decisions to cause a recession? Because, I mean, who wants that on their resume? Just well, historically, the, in the 20th century, you know, the Fed caused recessions. That's why you had recessions. Um, in the 2000s, it hasn't been the experience of most investors and stuff that the Fed causes recessions. But that is sort of the normal pattern throughout the life of the Fed. With a few exceptions, there are a few financial uh, crises, and there was a COVID you throw those out and the recessions are generally the result of fed action got it all right so let's talk about some retail stocks okay when's the last time you looked at retail i don't really look at retail yeah that's kind of for me it's always the one i i do pass over but we've talked about tandy before which does Mm -hmm. retail in their own fashion yep they're retail uh in their own fashion no pun intended right Mm -hmm. uh cole's corporation kss this is a 6.4 billion dollar company uh they're Free cash flow yield on these companies is pretty big. Abercrombie and Fitch. So Kohl's was, what was that? Three times EB to free cash flow. Abercrombie and Fitch, 3.6 times. This was the cool kids wore this when I was going to high school. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. This is more middle school and the cool kids wore it. Middle school, yeah. It was also very, um, it was expensive. So I did not wear it. I think a shirt at the time was like, I remember thinking like $70, $80. I could be off on that. But my perception of it was it was too expensive. So Andrew Kuhn did not wear Abercrombie & Fitch. Um, But $1.8 billion company, EV to sales is 0.3. Right. If you look at this from like a high-level overview, other than the declining revenue over time, Uh it looks interesting is this a situation though where it's like well is this a melting ice cube is this just in the too hard pile is this we don't know where fashion trends are going is this i mean you could see from the trend right. of this that well abercrombie and fitch hasn't done as well right it's kind of changed sure but. so this is a fascinating one abercrombie had terrific mar uh, terrific returns on capital and everything it was at about the same time as some other ones um aeropostel had yeah. good results uh, american eagle around that time uh abercrombie being the best of them at the time um and there are even some minor ones that people don't even know about and stuff that have either gone out of business or have really declined since then but we're also popular at the time uh as you can see huge declines probably if we saw the 20 year numbers we only see the 10 in from being a great business in the first part of that so in the two you know 2002 to um 2012 period much more so than in the last 10 years so if we look we could see that and we're pulling up 20-year financials from quick, quick FS. FS. there yeah. you go so yeah you can see that by what was it 2007 2008 yeah. so 2008 which is really 2007 um they earned 800 million pre-tax mm-hmm. yep. right and then what have they earned in recent years uh yeah so how long would it take them to earn 800 million a long time i mean so in 2020 it was 62 million 2019 116 million 2018 55 million i'm so. not sure they've earned in the last nine years combined no what they yeah. earned in one year in 2007 so you can see the peak there you can see if we look at key ratios how good it was back then this is the fascinating thing to me has customer behavior changed yeah because my so. initial inclination i mean yes we look at the numbers and we see well this has been a declining business but right. i I just feel like my, you know, just from observing the world and what people wear and stuff like that, it really has changed. I feel like. Yeah, that's what happened here. Look at the returns on tangible capital. And we could look at other ones too. Mall retailers were big in the 90s and 2000s, teen retailers. Um, and then there was competition that came in from other things, uh, fast fashion and those sorts of things and, and a lot of stuff like that. Um, but does it matter? Because obviously okay you buy a stock you get the future it doesn't matter what the past was of it unless the past is somehow indicative of the future obviously we have no reason to believe that abercrombie prior to 2007 and you could look at the market cap or something it was a huge popular stock at at that point so what was it in um at one point it looks like its peak was seven billion mm -hmm. yeah so uh you're trading at you know uh so two three years ago it had a point where it was one tenth of that so the market cap came down by 90%. Now it's not down by as much as that, but what are you at? One fifth, one fourth, something like that. One fourth, maybe. Um, 
Okay, a little bit higher than that, but still, still you're you're pretty yeah. low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um it's pretty cheap looking, obviously. Uh actually gross profit is even higher than market cap in EV. Um EV though probably isn't including their leases that they have. It's very tied to malls, of course, you know. But you could look at cash flow to give you some idea here. The last few years prior to, let's see, they had COVID, but that didn't change things a ton. Okay. Yeah. I'd say we're looking at 150 to 300, probably in the 200 something range is their free cash flow. Um, and, you know, that's more than a 10% free cash flow yield. Yeah. Looks like they've bought back stock over the past 10 years. Yeah, not a lot. I mean, recently they've bought back stock, mm-hmm. but not a lot versus the free cash flow they were generating. So I wonder what they were doing with that free cash flow. Let's look at the balance sheet. Um, like all these retailers, you know, it doesn't have a huge amount of current assets versus total liabilities because of the lease issue. So they're all have that basic problem that they're not compared to some of the businesses we talk about. They're not really, you know, they don't have fortress balance sheets type things. This one has a ton of cash on his balance sheet, as mm-hmm. you can see there. So for a retailer that's successful and stuff, it's over um, capitalized. But again, just warning that if things go badly for a retailer, financially it will go much worse than for other kinds of companies like um, manufacturers and stuff. Yeah. It's also selling for less than retained earnings, I believe, which is interesting. That's yeah. usually a strong, strong sign of value stock. Now we saw that they're, Retained earnings are from a long time ago, a lot of them. Um, But just in case anyone's wondering, I would just say that one of the strong signs of a value stock tends to be that the business is valued in the market at less than retained earnings. They make a big deal about price to book and academic things and stuff, but we don't know where that book came from. So that's tough. Um, Here, we know that uh, that they're selling for less than their retained earnings in the business. So... That's interesting. How would you think about if you were going to frame like an investing case? I mean, just how would you frame like the trend of like not what people the, wearing and stuff like that? Not at these prices. You know? Just a question of whether it would fall apart or not. If it maintains the levels that it's at now, obviously it would be a successful investment. I mean, we're talking about price to sales 0.5 or something. How often mm-hmm. has operating margin been less than 5%? Not a lot. Um, we're looking at quarterly right now, but generally that's uncommon. Uh, yeah, it looks pretty cheap. Yeah. So. Um, what about, uh, here's another one that was interesting. Big Lots. B-I-G. Yeah, I, I don't know Big Lots well at all. I've been to some Big Lots. Uh, it's a hard one for me to figure out. Have you ever invested in a retail company? Mm-hmm village i was just at a store recently checking it out for uh this past weekend i was at a store looking at it just as i was interested in the company i wanted to see their store and shop there and look through it and stuff and i did ollie's do you know that company no ollie's bargain yeah Uh, the business model interested me and the shop was very interesting what's the ticker uh i don't know the ticker o-l-l-i and then it should find it yep so it's the ticker O-L-L-I is the ticker. Oh, there you go. Ollie's Bargain Outlet yeah. Holdings. Yeah. I'm surprised that you came across it. It's usually off our screens. Three billion? Three billion and huge share turnover. Yeah. Very popular thing. But curious, the, huh? the business model interested me. I was reading about their investor, uh, was it their investor presentation? I guess I read their investor presentation and their staff, like how long their staff had been there and what they've been doing before and everything. So it definitely interested me. Did somebody just send you this stock? How'd you come across it? No, I came across it. I don't remember how, um, but I was just interested in seeing it. It wasn't because of the price and stuff. It was just the way they described their business model was very interesting to me. And so I wanted to see it in person. So I did. How did they describe it? What caught your eye? It's a closeout retailer. Mm-hmm. So bankruptcies, um, other things where they need to unload it, but a lot of um, branded goods instead of private label. 
not really that into companies that carry a lot of private label stuff, you know? So this was one that carry that doesn't carry a lot of private label. It's trying to give you bargain, you know, discount stuff. And then it's very randomized what sort of things might be in the store and at that moment. And then it uses a lot of humor in its advertising, which I think is a great idea for a company like that. So it just fits a lot of the things of companies I've seen that focus on that low cost thing and use some of those things in their um, promotions and stuff. So I thought that that was, uh, you know, very good. Um, and it was very interesting and I bought a ton of stuff at the store. So, Oh, there you go. All right. So we got KSS Coles Corporation. So $6.4 billion company, EV 6.5. This is another one that from, you know, just a bird's eye view looks like it's trading super cheap. Mm-hmm. 0.3 times price of sales and 10 year median margins on EBIT have been 7.7%. Yeah. I don't understand a business like this. I mean, I've seen Kohl's. I never really understood what their positioning is versus other companies. I'm sure that people who understand those things understand and how it has a clear positioning, but, uh, it falls in the same category as a lot of businesses like that for me, whether we were talking about clothing retailers or department stores or something, it's a problem for me that I don't see clearly, how it is different from other kinds of companies and why people would prefer one versus the other. And so then, you know, that becomes a bit of a problem with retail. You know, it could be, it could be merchandising things. It could be whatever that I don't understand well enough. Like, you know, you can see operating margin has declined almost every single year. Um, Gross profit has been somewhat volatile. Uh, I mean, it just generally doesn't reflect the kind of company that I would buy, but of course it's cheap enough. So a lot of these, you know, maybe you could do as a basket, as a value thing. That yeah. would be my suggestion. That's if what I was thinking. Found them. Yeah. Probably just find one, which ones you, I mean, one way to do it is you could just find which ones you think are acceptable and buy them as a basket. However, the likelihood is the one that you find not acceptable will have the biggest return. Mm-hmm. Um, net net retailers have very high returns, but they're very, uh, it's, you know, hard to um, tell ahead of time that way. Again, the problem is, you know, financially, when we're talking about with leases and all that sort of thing, you know, they don't have huge amounts of current assets versus um, total liabilities. Their current assets are positive, but again, I'd be they're not as financially strong as they appear to be. They have higher credit risk in the long run than you might think, but it's overcapitalized again. I mean, uh, I would, I shouldn't say it's overcapitalized. It's cash and it's long-term debt are pretty similar. And I guess then there you've got the leases. So you could say that it's appropriately capitalized. Uh, retained earnings here are 13 billion, right? And what's the market cap? Was it 6 billion? I believe. Yeah. 6.4 mm-hmm. billion. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't know if they're the right kinds of companies because, of course, many of these don't look like they've created a lot of value for a long time in terms of returns on invested capital. Now, maybe the cash basis is different and all that, but these don't have a history of particularly good um, value creation in the last 10 years or so. Now, this isn't, it doesn't seem like an enterprise type business. It seems like if you're going to buy it, you kind of structure it as a cigar butt, right? Like a but, one puff in the basket. Okay, but that was not what it was, any of these companies were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. These are some hot stocks. Abercrombie. Um, or I knew that was. Yeah, if you go to the 20-year stuff for these companies, these were popular companies. That's true for a lot of retailers. The, a lot of these had stronger growth in the earlier periods of the 2000s. People would have liked them. Uh, what are we in? Okay, so we're in Abercrombie here. Um yeah, returns on equity, everything was pretty strong back then. Yeah. You can even look at the income, the growth and revenue and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they were very, and um, I believe back then their share count would have been increasing and stuff. You know, they, they were growth companies, definitely. But this isn't a situation that you would ever, we've always talked about sort of the life cycle. You get the crazy growth. And then you get the tide to go out. And that's kind of typically when Buffett's interested, when the position in the industry is solidified. Right. But are these solidified? Yeah. They come, they peak, and then they they, they get better and better for 10 years. They peak, and then they get worse and worse every year yeah. after that. Mm-hmm. That looks a lot different than when we talk about... Um, like an apple. Or, or even if we talked about the airline industry or the railroad industry or... Um, we've talked about Lime here, or even we t- if we talked about a lot of different things that way. Um, they may have difficult periods, but then once they 
uh, seem that they have much steadier returns on capital. They don't have continuously weakening business fundamentals. So that's the hard part here is that it's, it's not, it's a little different than some other companies because people ask about like, would you invest in a declining industry or whatever? Like I've mentioned fossil fuels recently. It seems to me that fossil fuels, there might be some reasons why it's not getting as much investment as it should. Um, I mean, in terms of CapEx and lending to the industry, raising capital, um, all that kind of things. So it may not have as much asset growth as you'd expect for an industry that seems promised to offer certain returns on capital. Uh, if that's true, then it makes it more attractive, right? Um, but there's a, they could have a stabilization because of that. But if you have things where there's a lot of new entry into the industry or where people who should be out of the industry, which seems like a lot with these retailers, that they should withdraw from the industry and they're not. So why is that? You know, I don't know. One is maybe there haven't been as many bankruptcies as there should be. Um, and that may be because of the credit situation the last 10 years, but especially since COVID, that could be one factor. Two is there's a lot of pure play retailers and a lot of public retailers. And so they're not going to cut. They don't like to cut back a lot in their stores and shrink and all of that. Um, whereas if they're parts of their bigger divisions of big companies and things, then, you know, there'd be more rationalization. Buckle has been a fascinating one to me. Okay. We've talked about Buckle before on the podcast. Right. And it also is, you know, trading at similar multiples. Now the EV to sales or price to sales are a little bit higher, but we've talked about before how well they've actually managed their gross profit sure. through uh, the decline in their business. Right. And Buckle, I think, is more interesting than some of the companies we talked about because it has managed itself well that way. It is maybe more differentiated from other things. And all these do could benefit from the possibility, of course, that they can sell a lot online in the future versus in stores. And that a lot of it is about building a brand and all that. That's what the stores were originally for. Um, that's the, you know, the mall based, the team retailers we talked about, that's the mall was their way of building their brand. But maybe you can build that in other ways now, um, online through influencers and social media and spending directly on a lot of stuff that way. And big ad budgets instead of big um, rental payments and things like that. But things that have a brand that ha that people are aware of are at an advantage that way. And of course, if you have a fashion thing, there might be a hiccup um, you know, as a cigar butt thing where something happens that that thing that you're invested in has a good period for fashion for that, for whatever reason, and then it does better. And so I guess that's possible. Um, this one does look somewhat more interesting than some of the others. It seems maybe less likely to destroy a lot of value. Um, we could look at the balance sheet. Yeah. Yeah. It looks better. I don't know things about retailing, but it just looks a lot better. More solvent. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the people running it or what the situation is, but and what their plans are. But um let's look at cash flows. Two thousand twenty one they generate two hundred twenty seven million in cash flow which was up from 131 million which was up from 109 million yeah so let's look at the overview um so they're not that cheap right i mean on a pe basis they look pretty cheap but if we go up what's their market cap 1.9 billion that doesn't seem crazy cheap versus things like free cash flow so i don't know if i would like it that much and the other thing is like look at the EBITDA and stuff here. The, the problem with all of these is like type in village so you can see what that way you could buy a supermarket for, you know? I'm not recommending village all the time as a stock, but when compared to um, a lot of specialty retail things, you can see that it doesn't have radically different EV to EBITDA multiples in many cases. Um, it is a much more durable business over time. It has much better, um, higher level financial results 
with poor operating results recently as they've come down. But you can see that any recovery in operating margin, like for instance, operating margin is 1.6% right now. If it increased, was able to increase it to more like in the two point, yeah, you could use 2.7 there as an idea, um, you know, but it just increase it to 2.4% or something, the two to two and a half percent range, two and a half percent might be very possible for them in the past. Um, that obviously makes a big difference. You're earning 50% more mm-hmm. basically. And if this business was earning 50% more then you know, you could imagine for you be trading at on an EV basis, a really low number and on a market cap basis, even, you know, seven times pre-tax or something low, very, very low. I mean, not it's taxed highly, but very, very low double digits at most PE. Um, but you're not going to, unless something really changes, you're not going to get some amazing results from mm-hmm. it. Whereas it's more exciting with these other companies that have more volatile results. But you could just see if you look at in quick FS at something like this, a food retailer, how consistent results are by most measures. Now, their operating results are not consistent, but how consistent results are, um, just as an example, I mean, gross profit is. I mean, when has gross profit been down year over year? That absolute amount of gross profit. One year went from four hundred forty-five million to four hundred thirty-seven. Okay, that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah, and that was on a two percent decline in revenue and a stable gross margin that year. And gross margin has declined sometimes, but it's never declined enough to you know to cause a decline in the uh, overall level of gross profit. And other times it's risen. Um, you know, revenues up slightly in most years, gross profit is up slightly in most years, not a lot. They've made some mistakes, I think in terms of capital allocation. And I think that they definitely have operating issues that you've seen. They, at one time, you know, 10 years ago or so, were able to get to like 3% margins. And since, you know, the last couple of years have been really bad where they're at 1.6, 1.7, obviously during COVID. But you would hope that they'd be able to be higher in the two point something range, or you could look up Kroger, which is a um, other supermarket people are familiar with, right? So much more expensive company, obviously. Um, I don't see why Village couldn't have margins that are pretty similar to Kroger in terms of operating margins. Um, yeah, I mean their gross margins are way better. Uh, Kroger, yeah. I think Kroger's a better-run company, but I think Village has better assets. But, um, yeah. But again, like, so you have marginally increasing revenue or gross profit. If we're going to see inflation and things, what do you think is going to be able to keep pace with that and stuff? Is it going to be those supermarket things? Are they going to be around a really long time? Online, how much of people are going to replace their shopping at Kroger and Village and places like that by doing all online somewhere else? How much of it, if people want online for convenience purposes, will still be fulfilled by those companies? They'll still do it themselves. They have, you know, online things that they can do. Um, so if it's just a convenience thing, they can do it. I think they can match most anything anyone else can do. Um, you know, whereas with the retailers that are in clothing and stuff like that, I don't know. But clothing, clothing retail is something that I is just way outside my circle of competence. Don't understand a lot about clothing. Don't understand a lot about retail. You know. Mm. Have you tried online delivery for groceries? Yes, I have. I've used, um, Amazon was doing all sorts of things trying to get me to get online delivery. So I've tried it before, yeah. Do you like it as a consumer? I personally like to pick it out myself. Uh, to pick it out yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And like so to see can. the quality of it. It's for oh. perishable things, at least. Yeah. It, I mean, it's hard. Um, it's interesting. I don't know about the these food things and stuff. There's been definitely more interest in food delivery than I would have expected, considering that the price is usually higher and it's usually taking longer to get to you. So expensive. Um, but also how slow it is. Mm-hmm. If you had told me that you could make people wait, you know, 50 minutes for a delivery of something and they would that they ordered and that it would be priced above what they could go get something locally, you know, it's hard to believe that that's successful so there is some demand for that uh i think supermarket stuff is really hard because as such a broad selection and you're buying very unusual things um together there's not a lot of logic to that uh i think it's hard for online to ever compete with supermarkets 
they'll some will shift it online. I think the stores themselves will be able to do a lot. Um, I don't think it'll ever be a really huge category that way. I mean, we are in retail things. In um, I've done food retail before. I've owned food retail stocks. That's something I've done. And uh, I've owned car dealers. I mean, you know, we've mentioned manager accounts. I've owned a car dealer. So that's a retail thing too. Mm-hmm. I think that those are different and have certain advantages um, in a few different ways. But also just advantages that basically I think that by being offline and then also having an online component, they're really better able to fulfill your needs than being online. Um, being online and trying to get offline, I think is harder. Um, I don't think that that's a really big advantage that way. Whereas it's fairly easy to duplicate the online thing for any of these, you know, how do you duplicate the online experience for a car dealer? It's not hard for a car Mm -hmm. dealer to duplicate the online experience of other car dealers that started online supermarket. How does, you know, um, village and Kroger and stuff copy something that started on Amazon. I don't think it's that hard for them to do. The online part of it is not very difficult. Um, the offline part is difficult. Do you have a store near me? How big is it? What's the selection? How fast is it turning? Things like that versus do you have a website that can do this? It's a scale thing. Mm -hmm. You can hire lots of people to do all that. I don't think there's a lot of magic to that. Um, now there's other ones that's different, you know, for some of the things that Amazon sells and stuff, it's very different. And same with like Costco and stuff when you get into certain non-food categories. But for food, I think that it's very hard to um, to replicate the experience that people have on uh, offline, online. I mean, I don't know. Do the people who use it have, do you know of things where people have high satisfaction and repeat use of online groceries? No. Yeah. It seems like, Whereas, like I know, you know, there are things that people are happy with, um, you know, shoe shopping online or something or some clothes shopping. If they know their sizes and everything, they can return it easily. Yeah, I'm not that They're, customer. Because yeah. if, I, if I get it and it doesn't fit me, I won't take the time to return it. I'll just throw right. it away. Okay. <laughs> or do whatever. Yeah. So, I, but, but I never order clothing online because I just don't trust it. I'd rather go in person and try it on and make sure I like it and stuff like that. But maybe yeah. I'm unique in that regard. Yeah. Um, I think those are categories are easier. I think food's really hard. Yeah. And with the car dealer one, I don't know. I, I've thought there'll be ones that are different, but I've thought historically that having a lot of the process online up to the point of closing and stuff makes a lot of sense. And that a lot of deals will still close in person, but you know, COVID may have changed that. Hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the focus compounding podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, uh, hit the subscribe button, follow me on Twitter at focused compound. If you are a repeat listener, and you want to support us, you can just leave us a nice comment, or hit that thumbs up button, or tell your friends about us. Tell your friends. If you are an investor and you want to use us for some or all of your capital, reach out to me for our investment services, Andrew at Focus Compounding. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.